I'm Adit Shakraborty and this is The Business. Coming up, does the recession mean it's time to rethink our retirement? We discuss pension plans, disappearing final salaries and how the grey vote could become the most important demographic of them all. Plus, wildcat strikes at Lindsay Ore Refinery and industrial action on the tube. We investigate whether the unions have been galvanised by the economic crisis. And, as Mervyn King and Alistair Darling clash over banking reform, we analyse the impact of their black tie slanging match. It's nothing personal. This is The Business from The Guardian. And what a panel we have for you this week. Deborah Hargreaves, always a pleasure, Deborah. Good afternoon. Patrick Collinson is the editor of Guardian Money and our personal finance guru. Your first time on the pod, Patrick. That's true. And I'll say good morning rather than good afternoon. Oh, it's morning. <laughs> <laughs> I've moved on. <laughs> 24-7, Deborah. Um, and our special guest this week is Ros Altman, a former investment banker and ex-governor of the LSE, and now an advisor and expert on pension policy. I'll say hello. We'll get on to the fighting talk from the Chancellor a little later, but we'll start this week with an industrial battle. There's hopes of a breakthrough in the unrest at the Lindsay Oil Refinery on Humberside. On Monday, hundreds of unofficial strikers burnt their dismissal letters outside the plant's gates, while around 3,000 workers at other refineries and plants also walked out in support. At the time of podding, union officials said they were open to entering into discussions about the sacking of the 647 Lindsay workers for their wildcat action in dispute about the hiring of foreign labourers. Meanwhile, the recent strikes by workers on the London Underground caused disruption to millions in the capital, and I hope all of you outside London were well and truly riveted by The Guardian's twittering of the event. Deborah, what's your view of these wildcat strikes? Well, I think in the Lindsay Oil Refinery, the total managers have painted themselves into a bit of a corner. I was listening to this on um, the radio and um, they are insisting that the strikers go back to work before they have any discussions and they don't seem to be very flexible on that. So I think in that particular dispute, they have painted themselves into a bit of a corner and it looks looks quite inflexible. But I think these strikes are a sign of wider unrest in the workplace. And you just see, you know, there's a lot of people being made unemployed at the moment. People are feeling very insecure and very uncertain about their jobs. And um, we've got bodies like the CBI, the employer's body, coming out with a wonderful report on how flexibly we're all working now, which means actually we're all working a bit less and getting paid less. And um, with some amazing statistic, I think it was something like 50% of firms have implemented a pay freeze and others are looking for a pay cut. So I think there, there is a, a very great deal of insecurity in the labour market and I'm sure we will get more strike action of this sort. As, as the recession goes on and as an unemployment starts to climb, workers will try to fight to protect their, their jobs and try to push as hard as they can. But it actually has been quite interesting to see the extent of the flexibility so far and so quickly. You know, a lot of workers have, have cut down to four days a week and... and Without complaining, without complaining. Yeah, I know. I think that is the interesting thing, that people are are prepared to do these things to save their jobs and to save their companies. But if you would just return to Lindsay refinery workers for a second, Patrick, if you look at some of the rhetoric they use, British jobs for British workers, that all sounds very BNP, doesn't it? It may be. I mean, when I look at this dispute i sort of think well over the last year or two you've seen very macho management from companies i mean you're in a you're in a deep recession we know which way unemployment is going if you've got workers who are kicking up a fuss what do you do you can sack them it's very easy where else are they going to go no you can be a macho manager and i think what this is is a rebellion against that normally during an economic downturn 
workers don't go on strike. Strikes are very much more prevalent during boom times because workers are confident enough to strike, confident that the company's making lots of profit and confident that they can get a share of that. When we're in a um, very different situation as we are now, workers don't normally go on strike. But I think this um, uh, uh, dispute at Lindsay says a lot about the fact that workers are saying, look, this is just going too far. Uh, On the one hand, we've got a company that's still making, I mean, oil companies are still making a huge amount of profit. Which way is the oil price going? Uh, It's importing labour from uh, Portugal and Italy. And uh, these workers are being sacked and there's other jobs available elsewhere, but they've been prevented from being hired there. I mean, this this is a situation I think where I, I think one can be quite sympathetic. But hang on, uh, we're, we're, all, we're all members are, of the European Union. Yeah, sure. Uh, there's I meant to be this, free movement yeah, of labour. Yeah, I, I think this is a bit worrying, this whole sign about foreign workers, yeah. you know, the kind of growing sort of nationalism about that. I do, I do think that's a worrying sign. I mean, you, what, are you, why are you sympathetic towards that? Well... We're in a situation, again, where a, a fast-growing economy will naturally absorb a, lo- a lot of um, uh, imported labour. Um, in a, a situation where yeah, there's a shrinkage in demand for labour, um, it's very understandable that people will try to defend the position that they're in. And I think it's so easy to look at it as an economist and say, oh, you know, from a very top-down view, you know, the, the, the general good is served in this way. And then you go, you look, at, look for the bottom up and you think, well, hold on. Um, I haven't had much of it. Remember, workers have not had very good pay rises in the last 10 years. They haven't even shared in the boom because what's happened uh, that for, for blue-collar workers, wages have hardly risen for 10, 15, maybe even 20 years now. Yeah, that all the um, rewards have gone to the top layer. Reward, I mean, and it's very nice for us sitting here in a studio in London and maybe we've got Polish cleaners and if you're an upper-middle-class person on a good salary, you're doing very well and you can afford cheap import labor, and you are the main beneficiary. Now, if you're a blue-collar worker on something not much above minimum wage, quite how much have you shared in the boom of the last 10 years? And you'll have a natural disposition to say, well, these people seem to be gaining. I'm not. And so I have some sympathy for that. Maybe it's because in my own situation, I know members of my own family, they're cleaners, they're painters, they're decorators. They are the sort of people, and I've got seven brothers and sisters, who uh, have not shared in this prosperity. Uh, there are I, 10 years in which their wages have been depressed. By Roz, let me bring you in here, um, because what Patrick's talking about is working class has actually not got the same amount of power as it used to have back in the, in the 60s and 70s. But there are pockets where the workforce does have a fair amount of power, and you can the Tube is actually a very good example of that. Um, and yet when the RMT workers go on strike, commuters... Papers in London, the media, they all get slightly het up about it. And they say, why are these people asking for a 5% now when the rest of us are cutting back? What do you make of that kind of reaction? I, I think there is a growing divide and a growing anger in the private sector against what they see as a kind of much more generous and protected work environment, both in terms of pay and job protection, uh, in the public sector. And, and there used to be a lot more sympathy, I think, with public sector workers from the point of view of of pay, and that has waned. I think from the point of view of the total workers, it's not just about pay. I think it's about job security as well. And I think, you know, they are seriously concerned that, you know, even if they accept the level of pay they're getting, they may not have a job because it will be taken by by others from outside. And, And, you know, the kind of xenophobia that we've seen, I don't think is very healthy. The, the tube situation in, in London is, is a very different one from, from what I can see. And that does lead on to, uh, you know, the, this, this, you know, one-fifth of the workforce which works in the public sector with four-fifths of the workforce 
looking on and saying, hold on a minute, we're losing our jobs, we're, we're taking pay cuts. It's not happening to you guys, so please don't pensions, complain. pensions, which leads us on <laughs> we'll, to our we'll next We'll come topic. on to that in a second. <laughs> OK, let, let's park that there. You can follow what's going on at Lindsay at guardian.co.uk. This month, Morrison's a supermarket, Barclays Bank and BPD All Giant became the latest FTSE companies to close their final salary schemes to new recruits. It means that less than one in six of the private sector has access to such pension plans. Because while we're living longer, we're still more or less consigned to the labour scrap heap as soon as we hit 65 and get our free bus pass. So has the time come to rethink our retirement? Roz, you're in favour of some big changes when it comes to this area, but before we get to solutions, tell us about some of the problems with pensions and retirement. I mean, we're going for a big pension scare at the moment because the stock market's gone down, we're in the middle of a recession, but I've, I remember previously after dot-com boom uh, all came to an end, we had another pension scare then. Is this really anything more than just a periodic scare that we have every time the stock market goes down? I, I think it's a lot more than that, and I think actually this is a pensions crisis and it has been building up for many years. In a way, I think it's very uh, sad that the government didn't acknowledge in 2005 when we had the Turner report on pensions uh, that we are in a pensions crisis because we definitely are. You know, the, the, the fact is that most people, especially if you don't have a final salary pension scheme and going forward, less and less people will have one, are on their own facing rather a bleak retirement because the private pensions that they may automatically think will be delivered just because they're contributing to, to some pension fund is just not going to materialise and the state pension is absolutely inadequate for you to have any kind of decent lifestyle later on. OK, so give us a nightmare scenario. If things continue as they are, what will Britain look like in 30 years' time? We will have a substantial proportion of the population in poverty, millions of you know, heading for 30% of our population will be over 65. And what will they be living on? You know, there'll they'll be obviously some who've got quite a good final salary pension. They'll be OK. But the vast majority of them will be coming up for retirement and have very little income and will have a pretty miserable life, lifestyle. But Along the way, you will probably see some kind of social unrest, some kind of taxpayer revolt. You know, you'll have protests, pensioner strikes. I would not rule that out at all. Pensioner protests, you know, older people on the streets saying this is not how it was meant to be. Somebody's let us down. But won't, Real we, anger. won't we all be working at B&Q, though, Ros? <laughs> That's part of the solution. I mean, I don't think B&Q itself is, is necessarily the, the ideal, but certainly... I think what we have to do, and urgently, is to radically rethink both pensions and retirement. Pensions alone are not going to solve the So what do you crisis. want? You want us all to continue working longer, perhaps, what, working two or three days a week once we get past six Yeah, what, what, what I think is waiting out there for some visionary politician to, to grasp and, and for social commentators to, to start to work with is a whole new phase of life that we could never have had before, that previous generations couldn't have had, where you've had a first full-time career and then into your 60s and 70s, no magic one age beyond which you, know, you can't do anything. You're doing some part-time work with a lot more leisure time, better lifestyle, but also more money to enjoy your leisure. Patrick, let's bring you in here because it's all very well for journalists and policy experts to do a bit of freelance work once you get past 65. But 
it's very difficult to get the odd shift at a car factory, isn't it? Once you get over I couldn't agree more. When, when we've raised this in our pages and we said, well, you know, this cliff edge of retirement, this idea that you retire at 60 or 65 and then you are in a situation where you are taking your final salary scheme and so on. I mean, uh, OK, that, that's now history. And, and people are talking about maybe uh, continuing to work through part-time, three days a week, two days a week, and enjoying that sort of run through your retirement. That does work if you're in a good service job and if you set up your freelancer, if you've been an IT contractor. Even my, if my mother as a nurse went down to sort of like three days, two days, one days. But if you... If you're on a physical um, manual job, my mother, as a nurse, in the end had to stop because she had to lift people. Now, how many 70-year-old women can be lifting? And she was in geriatric care herself. And I thought it was very interesting that you had 70-year-olds employed looking after 90-year-olds. Uh, and, and why not? Apart from that, it's actually quite a physical job. Well, we, uh, and there's yes, only a, there's as, a point at which say, the physical end of the market... We often get comments on our blogs about this from people, don't we, saying, you know, it's all very well for you to talk about it, but I'm exhausted, yes. I'm knackered, I can't carry on working, I've got to stop yes. now. So, yeah. so, Deborah, when Ross says all it takes to a visionary politician to come along and say, all right, you keep working till you're 90, that's actually not that easier sell to voters well well, I think it's for people in sort of you know traditional working class um, blue collar jobs which I suppose there are fewer of them but um, they often say you know we get loads of comments about this that you know um, we're we're in ill health and we've got to retire you know we can't carry on working and 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 it's not just not practicable not necessarily in the same job but if there is a you know a, a new way of thinking about your life where you are basically aiming to do some part-time work rather than assuming you're going to continue with whatever it was you were doing before. I do think Patrick, we uh, draw a distinction, though, between the pensioners who are in, uh, taking their pensions at the moment, where actually the problem is not huge. I mean, the, these are the people who lived in some ways through the good years, um, who have had final salary schemes, and uh, we have actually a generation of pensioners who are probably better off on, on average uh, than, we, than we maybe ever have had, or ever will have. The problem yeah. is, is what's coming up behind, is the people who are currently 40, 45, 50, I think their position has moved from fear that they may not have much in retirement to absolute despair that there is nothing. And I think what's happening in the stock market is absolutely crucial. We're now in a situation where the level of the FTSE is today at the same level as it was in 1995. We've been through 15 years with, without any um, uh, a rise in the value of your savings. And people are looking and think, well, property has now fallen apart. People remember, over the last 10 years, part of the property boom has been because people have been using it as an investment for their pension. Doesn't that just and prove that, that the answer is not to get everyone to save more? That isn't a reliable answer. There is no guarantee that even if you are saving, you're going to get a decent pension to last an ever-increasing length of time. I couldn't agree more, but I, mean, I, I, I look into this subject a lot... I, I despair of what the solutions are going to be. It has to be longer working lives but part-time. That is actually a benefit to most people. Most people in their 60s and certainly in the early part of their 60s and also many in their 70s know that they are capable of doing some work. Part of the problem is that policy is currently working against it. But we've done it for working mothers. You know, mothers with young children have found jobs in the labour force that they can do part-time. I'm quite convinced the same thing will happen for people in their 60s and 70s, but policy is not working with it, and that is a problem. Of course, in the middle of a recession, it's not an ideal time to talk about this, but we have to look forward and say, if you don't do it, there are going to be severe consequences. The baby boom generation are coming up for retirement. The demographics have been in place for a long time. At the moment, age discrimination legislation doesn't protect you beyond 65. That's crazy. If you're on pension credit and you're a poorer pensioner... 
and you earn more than £5 a week, you're penalised for it. Again, you know, that's not necessarily optimal. OK, Rod. Well, look, we'll bring you back to talk more about this because obviously there's, there's a lot in this subject. But for now, we'll leave that there. Uh, to give us your thoughts, post a comment on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. And finally this week, the black ties were on, but the gloves were very much off. As Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England, clashed with Chancellor Asa Darling on the best way to prevent another banking crisis. In his annual Mansion House speech to the city, Mervyn King called for more authority to intervene in the banks who have been seen to be behaving riskily. But Alistair Darling told the same event that he had no plans to fundamentally change the system of regulation. Here's a little taster with Mervyn King first. The bank finds itself in a position rather like that of a church whose congregation attends weddings and burials but ignores the sermons in between. Like the church, we can't promise that bad things won't happen to our flock. The prevention of all financial crises is in neither our nor anyone else's power, as a study of history or human nature would reveal. And experience suggests that attempts to encourage a better life through the power of voice alone is not enough. Warnings are unlikely to be effective when people are being asked to change behaviour which seems to them highly profitable. Recent events present us with an opportunity to build a stronger, more efficient and resilient financial sector. And if we're going to do that, we cannot go back to business as usual. And if there is anyone in this room or in the industry who thinks that they can carry on as if nothing had happened, they need to think again. All of us need to learn lessons. And this process, I believe, has to start in the boardroom as the first line of defense. You know, last summer, just as the crisis began to bite, I remember very well as I used to meet bankers probably more often than they wanted and I wanted in the Treasury. At the end of one meeting, a very senior banker told me, and he said to me, you know, we've decided that from now on, will only lend when we understand the risks involved. And I thought, what did you used to do? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we now own that bank. A rare moment of humour there from Alistair Darling. Patrick, we've got some example this week of what Alistair Darling meant by business as usual because we've seen a huge bonus package awarded to Stephen Hester, new boss of the bank that we own, RBS. Whose side are you on? Alistair Darling's or Mervyn King's? What, what... It is quite bewildering. Um, if you... <laughs> I think if there's, if there's one lesson uh, from the last year, uh, it's that light-touch regulation has failed. I think Mervyn King was making that point very clearly. Uh, Alice Darling strikes me as somebody who's still in thrall to the bankers. Um, and I think if, even if you look at it as well, the, the way that the taxpayer interest is um, uh, looked after is through a body called UKFI, United Kingdom uh, uh, Financial Investments. What they seem to be doing is, is behaving like an absentee landlord. Um, they, they, I, the, the, their only interest seems to be to get out as quickly as possible by ramping the share price up as soon as possible, and, and that way get some of the taxpayers' money back. Now, again, the lesson that we've learned from the last 5, 10, 15 years is that ramping up share prices just so that you can get your bonus, so you can get your um, performance figures and satisfy the city, is what led us into this problem. And it's, it's quite extraordinary uh, uh, that Hester's pay package has been approved by UK, UKFI and goes to show that really nothing is changing. It show, it, what it proves to me is that human greed knows no bounds. Everyone is greedy if given the opportunity, 
politicians in their expenses have shown huge amounts of greed. So the the answer to that is strong rules to stop it from happening. And the absolute, you know, the idea that we've nationalised RBS and gone back to the days of bonanza pay packages is just extraordinary. All right. But Dr. Ros Altman, who used to be an investment banker, we're always being told that actually running RBS in middle of recession with all these various pressures upon you is a very difficult job to do no doubt about that and you're always being told that if you don't pay a lot of money you won't get decent people I mean do you see any defense for the Hester package lots of people have difficult jobs and don't require that that sort of pay package but it's not the the amount that is being offered to him in terms of pay that I'm really concerned about it's more the incentives that are being given to him and I think they are fundamentally misguided to incentivise him uh, to, in the middle of a recession, to get the share price up seems to me in direct conflict with the wider public interest. You know, we, we, we've put billions of pounds into this bank and we are spending even more unimaginable billions in printing new money in quantitative easing, supposedly to ensure that banks lend to struggling businesses that desperately need it to survive and, and revive the economy. But if you want to get your share price up, you're not going to lend to those people. You're going to lend to people who you are absolutely certain are going to pay back or you're not going to bother lending at all. You're going to keep increasing charges even when others are struggling to repay. And that's exactly what's happening in the banking sector. And it seems to me that incentivising on a share price target, especially when this particular share has got a quasi-government guarantee, is looking at absolutely the wrong target. It's completely bonkers. And when you think that Stephen Hester himself said to the Treasury Select Committee, bankers pay is too high, well, what's what's the story behind that? And I mean, we could say, going back to Ross's point, that actually there were no lending targets built into Hester's... None at all. No, none at all. But but just going back to Alistair Darling and and Mervyn Mm -hmm. King-Patrick, I mean, shouldn't the head of the Bank of England and the Chancellor at Exchequer really be presenting a united front? Well, again, it was quite, it was quite extraordinary to see at the Mansion House, you know, the two biggest figures in the city, making a very obvious statement that they are not in accordance with each other uh, at, at a fairly you know, critical, crucial time for the economy. And it, it is uh, uh, bewildering. Um, Although you do I, sort of wonder what Mervyn King is on about, don't you? Because he was the one that well, was going yes. on about moral hazard two years ago when we were talking about nationalising Northern Rock and the government held off for ages before they nationalise it. Mm-hmm. He's completely changed his tune in the meantime. I also do worry, though, this debate so far has focused around the top-down regulation of what, what do we do with the big banks, how do we, you know, what do we do about the incentives for, for bankers and so on. I think the bottom-up end... Uh, uh, I mean, the, the other side of this crisis was the fact that, and I was just looking at some figures this morning about negative equity on the number of loans and these securitised vehicles that were so popular with the banks. Uh, they're falling to sort of at, at Northern Rock. Uh, we saw this morning 35% of loans are in negative equity. Now, when are the regulators going to get a grip of this? When are they going to start issuing rules that say, hey, companies like Northern Rock, you can't have, you can't start issuing 125% mortgages. Yeah. We're going to step in and we're going to regulate products. Now, that's one area where... Um, Alistair Darling seems to be terrified of, 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 of acting. OK, well, the Mansion House speech from Alistair Darling was meant to be a sort of a taster for the financial regulation white paper that we're getting from Treasury in the next few days. Let's close by just going around the table and seeing what each of you would put in as your one piece of financial regulation. Ros, you first. I think we have to have proper and more prudent controls on... Lending and on the activities of banks, I would like to see the investment banking split from the commercial deposit-taking banking. 
Deborah? Pay cap on boardroom pay and a union representative on every board. Patrick? Uh, Remutualisation. Oh, <laughs> controversial, Patrick. What, of, of what, H-Boss? <laughs> you want to take Halifax out and remutualise? Look, when did these well, problems start they, happening? How do they raise any money did, if they're did mutual? Halifax, uh, how was Halifax behaving when it was a mutual? It was, it, was, it, was, it was lending in a reasonably sort of reasonable way. It was only once it came onto the stock market and then Alliance and Leicester and then and Bradford Dunfermline and Bingley. And Building and Society. Yeah, uh, okay. Hardly the Building Society <laughs> sector covered itself in glory in this crisis. I, I disagree. Um, if you look, uh, Nationwide is 50% of the, of the Building Society movement. If you look at the, 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 the total nationwide sums, has been the, first the Building one to Society raise movement has behaved rather twice. more successfully. The, the banks that demutualised and went onto the stock market failed. OK, well, simple. we'll settle this outside. Uh, but for now, we're done for another week. My thanks to our panel, Deborah Hargreaves, Patrick Collinson, and our special guest, Ros Altman. If you want to get involved, post a comment on the blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. You can read plenty more comment and analysis from our magnificent team on the Guardian's business website. Our producer's Ben Green. I'm Adit Chakraborty. And that was the business.